This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Recorded in front of a live audience. In the 14th century confines of Joka Castle. On Lake Lesnia. In southern Poland. At CarcosaCon. Bandwidth and travel consideration brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We can't predict topics. But they just might include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. That pallid mask neither of us is wearing. And of course, food. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! Uh, so uh, we would like to give a, a uh, broad uh, shout out to all of our Patreon backers who make uh, this show possible as we continue on in our uh, typical live format. Those of you who are familiar with our uh, scintillating podcast know that our live episodes include the Nerd Trope deck, uh, handcrafted for us by uh, Calev Tate, who created one stack of nerd cards, one stack of trope cards, and uh, nerd and trope cards, you can attest that we've never met before today. Oh, we've never met before today. Okay, so let us see, Ken, what your nerd card for the evening it will be. That is Marco Polo. Marco Polo. And the trope card the is... trope card. Celtic mythology. Celtic mythology. A natural, a natural mix. All right. We all know Marco Polo, of course. He was a Venetian uh, merchant's son, traveled from Venice to the court of Kublai Khan, uh, basically because his dad needed someone he could trust, uh, to do double entry bookkeeping. And, uh, in his travels across Asia, he went through the Taklamakan Desert and described in great detail the exciting story of the singing sands of the Taklamakan that would call you all away from your caravan and discuss the uh, the many uh, ruined cities and the, the people said that there were devils that dwelt there and so many interesting discussions of the singing sands of the Taklamakan Desert. The desert that when you walk in, you do not return. You could call it an undiscovered born, perhaps. And in fact, the Taklamakan, prior to Marco Polo's trip through there, as far as history records, was occupied by the Tokarian people. And the Tokarian people... What do we know about the Tokarian people, Robin? Well, we know that they were... Uh, redheads who wore plaid kilts. I was just about to say that. Yeah, you were about to say that. And, uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, Tokarian people were described by the Chinese immediately prior to their conquest, question mark, as speaking the language of the birds. So, Robin, what do we have here? We have redheads 
who have plaid kilts, speak the language of the birds, live in a uh, expanse of singing sands with an undiscovered country, the born from which you do not return. Uh, the other exciting fact about the Takarians is that the city of Lulan, as the Chinese refer to it, we don't know the, what the Takarians referred to it, although it may have been Krorena, uh, vanished in a great dust storm when the river that fed Lulan went away all of a sudden. It, it went away as though it had never been there and was on a whole other side of a continent, perhaps. So, obviously, the answer is that the Tukarians were the Irish, that they wore uh, plaid kilts, they spoke a musical tongue, uh, possibly one handed down by magical birds of some sort, uh, such as the Morrigan, the raven goddess, and that at some point, the spell was broken, their seashore, uh, their, their great ocean, leaving behind nothing but dust, dried up, uh, because suddenly the world unfolded, just as Professor Tolkien predicted it would happen, right. and uh, Marco Polo passed through the literal graveyard of Celtic mythology, he passed through Anun, the land of the dead, because that's, of course, where the Celtic dead went to, was this hellish landscape of, of a bowl of, uh, of of dust with uh, with uh, uh, an unfriendly sky above and uh, nothing to do there but uh, kvetch basically um, and that was the taklamakan so the dead that are always trying to get caravan ears to stop are just trying to find their way back to Ireland that's all it was and uh, we do not know if Marco Polo's actual name was Mark Opolo History remains silent on that question. <laughs> but given that he is going through uh, uh, the land of the singing sands over the graves of plaid kilt-wearing red-headed musical bird people, I think you have to say it's unproven. So essentially what you're saying is they vanished. Right. Because it's Brigadoon. Precisely. They, they had a musical to get to. In they, the end. They, because they were literally musical people. And uh, Krorena um, and uh, Lulan between them, create a um, a verbal uh, knot, if you will, that ties the uh, the, the presence of, of Ireland, Anwun, and the Taklamakan together. So what does this mean to us uh, in the gaming world? I can hear you asking uh, if you would just get on with it. I think that what you can do with this is you can put it either in a, uh, as a big surprise for people playing in a uh, game of Druids in King Arthur, that when their character is dead, they wake up in the Taklamakan being uh, harassed by Han Chinese necromancers. Or you can um, uh, set it in the exciting 1930s when people are going back and forth across the Taklamakan again. Such as beloved, not technically a Nazi, uh, Sven Hedden, who is mapping the whole thing and carrying sacred Tibetan scriptures away from Tibet, where they would just fall in the hands of Tibetans, instead of to Berlin, where they will be kept safe for scholars of various persuasions forever. Uh, so Sven Hedden is out there wandering around the Taklamakan, discovers this uh, connection, this ancestral uh, connection, and as excited as a schoolboy at finding a dead white civilization somewhere, makes contact with the ghosts of Anwen. Well, that turns out, uh, as I think a child could have told Sven Hedden, to be a terrible idea. So you, uh, our heroes... Uh, maybe uh, Zungarian shepherds who know better than to go into the Taklamakan and are trying to contain this thing that this idiot guy stirred up with his uh, Tibetan scriptures and his magic. Or you may be uh, 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 Chinese officials. You might be um, uh, uh, commissars of either the uh, Guomindang or the Communist Party going in, perhaps rivals, uh, to recruit 
the dead Celts to your side, knowing that they will uh, give you mighty puissance uh, in the world of the dead, and maybe shock troops in the same way that a, uh, uh, a Chicago um, uh, political boss would recruit dead Irishmen as voting. It's the same basic policy. Um, so you're basically doing a Guomintang versus Chinese communist uh, party politics blockbusting campaign uh, in the wake of Sven Hedden. And that's the nerd trope for this live episode. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? So the, uh, the, the rest of this format is that we asked uh, questions of, uh, of the audience. Uh, we will attempt to remember each time to restate the question for the benefit of people listening through the microphone at home. Uh, and uh, we have, uh, uh, should we need them, uh, we have some ringer questions queued up. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, since there are a good 120 people out there, yes, uh, we, may, the audience, we may not be able to get to all the questions. All questions. So, uh, does anyone want to kick us off with a question? Who has one ready to go? Uh, well, while you think about your questions, uh, we have one here from Ken. Uh, this one comes from A Ringer. A Ringer. Yes. Right. Uh, what food do Hellenistic adventurers eat at the tavern after a challenging day tussling with centaurs? And cyclopes. Well, there's an interesting uh, argument. Obviously, the olives is a thing that everyone always ate. They ate uh, whatever they ate with garum, which is a, a fermented fish sauce, very similar to uh, Vietnamese fish sauce, except thicker and gooier, and you would eat that on bread. But one of the interesting things that they would eat is a concoction of flatbread, olive oil, cheese, and meat that was uh, cooked, oven-baked, and then served as a uh, topped flatbread, which... There is, honest to God, linguistic evidence was called pitia, which is a hypothetical ancestor of the word pita, which we all know as delicious Greek bread with uh, gyro meat in it. But back in the day, it just meant flat bread with uh, toppings. And if that word technically existed, 
which there are fun-ruining culinary historians, Robin. I know you won't believe me, but there uh, are. Uh, people who are both culinary historians and fun-ruiners. And fun-ruiners. I don't know how those two things can possibly I, go together. I don't know either. Uh, badly. Uh, they argue that that is a uh, word that is used by uh, medieval and early modern translators of these Greek uh, records. Uh, and when they copied them down, they simply replaced their word for flatbread with stuff on it uh, with uh, for the old by then uh, very obscure and arcane, whatever the actual word was. So the, the word pizza may or may not go back to Hellenistic times, but as long as I am alive and there's breath in my mouth and I'm writing the damn book, uh, when you are finished uh, hunting down centaurs and uh, fighting off dragon's teeth warriors, you can repair to the tavern anywhere from uh, uh, Syracuse to Alexandria for a delicious pizza with everything on it. Uh, now this, of course, has given our audience time to think of questions. Who's a question, audience? If you keep laughing, Lynn, we're going to ask you to share your question with the audience. Uh, stranger, who we haven't met before, Jason. Viking <laughs> mythology, Norse dwarves and giantesses. What's up with that? So the question is, what's up with Norse dwarves, dwarves, dwarves. and and, and, obsession with giants. and and giantesses and uh, Viking mythology? Yeah. Scandinavian. Scandinavian, right? Um, uh, legitimately, in my reading, uh, the word dwarf and the word giant both don't mean dwarf and giant in English. That there are some dwarves that are little short guys that are, are um, uh, running around a la your Tolkien dwarves. And some giants are enormous uh, mountain-dwelling uh, fellows that throw uh, crags at you. But a dwarf was just any sort of created being that was a son of Earth. That usually had some connection with uh, uh, metalworking, uh, but they could come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms, and so you could have an enormous dwarf, like with chicken feet. Like with chicken feet, and uh, giant. Similarly, I believe is, and uh, I'm open to uh, correction on this from Norse scholars, but my understanding is that giant and troll are words that are basically two words for the same sort of phenomenon thing. And, right, and and uh, the and the, the Jotun are sort of a, um, a a brand, not a breed, if I may. And so the Jotun come in all manner of different shapes, just like trolls do. And so there's giant trolls and little trolls, and there's giant giants, giant Jotun, and regular sized Jotun. So I think the notion is just the a version of the very very common myth that there is a thing of the mountain that loves a thing of the under mountain or a thing of the sea that loves a thing of the mountain, or whatever. The, the notion of the incompatible uh, attracting uh, has a strong uh, symbolic uh, quality, as well as, of course, a prurient quality, because if there's anything that's funnier than two things that can't get it on trying to get it on, the Norse had not yet discovered it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Jason. Do we have another question? Yes. Legendary properties of meat versus honeybeer. Robin? The le- so the question is the legendary. What what is the question though? What why why is one different than the other? Yes, um, you know, obviously in this wonderful castle here, they have been serving honey beer all weekend. So you know, from uh, have you been sampling it? Question one. And <laughs> two. I'm well, assuming you have made at some point. What would you say? Uh, that how do the two compare in terms of their mythic qualities? So the contrast, the mythic qualities of uh, honey beer and mead. So uh, the one of the original fermented drinks that humans first uh, would have discovered would be fermented honey. 
Uh, and that is presumably where the uh, idea of mead comes from and the idea of mead as the food from the gods comes from. So there are certain natural circumstances under which things will ferment and turn into alcohol without uh, human intervention. Uh, fruit rot- rotting on the vine is right. another one. So, uh, like, uh, uh, even birds, uh, can use that to get, yes, uh, hammered. Yes, and, and squirrels in particular, you know, if, uh, if, uh, uh, pumpkins are starting to ferment, they really, uh, dig that. So it's not just humans who know that there's something really exciting happening when, uh, uh, yeast starts to ferment and sugar turns into alcohol. So, uh, it was probably very, very early, uh, people who, uh, discovered the miraculous event that what happened when you had a particular set of climactic conditions and uh, the bees went away because I, I don't think it's any use to them once their uh, honey ferments. Mm-hmm. And so this was a special big, huge deal that might happen. Like uh, I remember a generation ago when, uh, you know, Longleg discovered uh, this um, miraculous thing and we all had this experience and that's when, uh, and of course, altered states of consciousness are when you encounter the gods. That's, uh, uh, when you uh, tra- traverse over in, into the other realm and you begin to have, uh, you know, there's certain patterns you begin to see and then you have visionary experiences. And so the association of uh, this sort of primal alcohol with the gods is uh, pretty clear and obvious. And mm-hmm. so that's why meat is the drink of the gods. Whereas uh, uh, honey beer is, you know, just part of a long panoply of different things that you can do to flavor a beer that is uh, conventionally uh, brewed uh, with uh, methods that uh, when people came along and figured out beer, which was also pretty early, but that's civilization by the time you get to beer. And and obviously there's different sorts of ways you can make honey beer. There's honey ale, in which I think the honey is introduced into the mash earlier, and then there's uh, the honey beer, which I think the honey is an additive after the beer has been made. And I suspect that goes to the good old Reinheitsgebot about beer purity laws, uh, which, uh, not hold in Poland, but I'll bet they held in Silesia. And, um, so the notion that you have to, you know, keep the beer separate from the additives is a concept that the British never really got around to because their whole life was additives. Um, so the, the question of the mythical quality, as Robin says, mead is very, very clearly the gift of the gods. It's historically connected to poetry. Um, uh, it's uh, 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 one of the, the, the druid gifts, uh, not least by synecdoche with the, or synecdoche with the, the druid's uh, mouth being the repository of, of godly wisdom and the bees, uh, or the, the honey having the sweetness uh, that, that, that flavors uh, his words. So um, that parallel exists and the notion of adding honey to beer uh, not only postdates it, but can be seen, I think, uh, to the extent that anyone is being particularly mystical about it, as a attempt to counterfeit the genuine article, and not that you know they're you know you're trying to pass it off as, but there's only so much mead to go around, as, as Robin points out. Certainly in the original times, mead is a is a once a generation occurrence, and even after that. Uh, which is cheaper, uh, uh, honey or barley, let's not see all the same hands. So obviously there's going to be less mead than there is beer in any circumstance. So if you want to increase the amount of uh, potentially um, uh, inspirational uh, uh, beverage, you're going to be adulterating your beer with honey, not 
trying to uh, industrially produce bees, which A, doesn't work, and B, is certainly beyond the, the capacity. So to the extent that a honey ale or honey beer would have a magical quality, it would be the magical quality of um, the sort of, uh, you know, false claimant, the, the thing that's attempting to get you somewhere um, and maybe lets you pass the first, you know, uh, guardian, but you're not going to get all the way to the seventh hell uh, just on a honey beer. That's just not going to happen. That takes a powerful mead drug. Um, and uh, apparently there is uh, some indication, although I don't know how historically sound it is because the stuff I read was Victorian and they loved making stuff up, but that metheglin, which is distilled mead, so it's basically the brandy of mead, was a thing that you could make in medieval monasteries pretty much before distillation became a giant thing in the West in the 12th and 13th century. Um, and that is basically because you could make it on the same principle as ice wine, that you would leave the meat out, it would freeze, you'd take the water out and then drink the, the leftover. So it's not classic distillation, it's right, a yeah. precursor to it. Yeah, right. But it but it produces this, you know, very, a bigger kick. Right. Um, and uh, the, the notion of metheglin as this sort of distilled elixir, if you will, of druidic inspiration, of divine grace, etc., because you are interfering in some sense with the process or exalting the process there might be seen as sort of trying to impersonate the gods from the other cycle around. So metheglin and honey ale sort of come back around with the same sorts of meanings, whereas the sort of mead would be seen as the pure, like wine is different from brandy magically, you'd have a similar effect, I would imagine, with uh, mead and honey ale. Now, I should probably say at this point that I have literally never read anything about a legitimate magic tradition that gave a rudy toot about different varieties of beer. So we're going to continue to make one up. Right, yeah, Um, obviously. uh, So uh, I think this indicates our uh, relationship to bees. Uh, And so clearly what happened is uh, originally the bees were not super interested in making mead for us. They just did it by accident, right? That their, mm-hmm. their house got wrecked. Some, uh, I think there's has to be water introduced into mm-hmm. it and in particular temperatures. And so, so probably a flood. Yeah. Uh, your, 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 your tree where your, uh, hive is gets, uh, gets flooded, but it's far enough up that you could still ferment and recover it. So whatever it is. So the, the bees initially are not uh, particularly interested in, in doing this for us, but somehow we make a deal with them. Uh, and they can, they say, well, this process where we lose all of our hard-earned honey is sort of a drag. Is there something else that we could do? And, and obviously, this was a deal that was made in Belgium because, as we all know, bees are essential to the producing of uh, lambics uh, because uh, in the uh, breweries there, there's uh, wooden rafters which have been there for uh, usually hundreds of years, and uh, bees come and make their nests up in the rafters and then spare bits of pollen uh, and we all know, you know, bees are uh, somewhat profligate with their pollen, uh, and uh, they're uh, not to kink shame, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and that also, but that's part of their arrangement with the flowers, right? Yeah. But you know, once you you know agree to let yeah. a certain percentage of pollen go astray, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, the bees they're not detail oriented, so they're uh, some of it can fall from the rafters of a brewery into the beer, and that's how you get your lambics. And well, they're more dancers than accountants. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Exactly. Um, well, there's some math involved yeah. in the in the hex hex grids, but right. those those are the wargamer bees, right? Yeah, and they're insufferable. That's a, it's a different cast. You, you can't make an arrangement <laughs> yeah. with them at all, right? Um, and it happens that when uh, a Belgian brewery recently had to renovate 
and the the health inspectors came in and said, or I think the building inspectors said, you know that that roof is going to fall in and possibly kill people. And they, well, maybe they won't kill like super important people yeah. because we don't know what to do with if we build new rafters. It's, it's mostly Walloons. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, so you know they had to wait. I think a generation for the rafters to get into the condition where bees found them inviting and came back and started uh, pollinating them again. So we think of, you know, how essential bees are to pollinating flowers, but we don't think of that usually as how essential they are to pollinating lambics. And obviously bees um, uh, have had a mythical significance going uh, way back. They're associated with, um, you know, Samson, for example, uh, as a, a totem figure, a totemic figure who uh, utilizes bees as a conduit for divine power. Uh, uh, George uh, Gurdjieff, the uh, delightful Armenian uh, charlatan, uh, believed that the mystical uh, dances and movements that he had created were inspired by a legendary brotherhood, the Sarmung Brotherhood, somewhere in Central Asia that had studied the bees to learn the various uh, yogic moves that uh, harnessed the energy flows of the universe. I mean, studying bees means drinking fermented honey. That's yeah, how you do that. Right, and if you're in the Sarmung Brotherhood, you've really got only two things you're doing. <laughs> drinking honey and studying bees. And you do know about the Tate and Lyle teams with Samson and the, and the lion, don't you? Right. Tate and Lyle golden syrup. Yeah. There's a mm-hmm. lion carcass on the, on the label, which is the, um, it's the, the bees making the honey in the lion's rib Cavity, yeah. yeah. Which a lot of people didn't realise it was there, and apparently they took it off for a while. And there were complaints that it wasn't there, so they're going to have, they have to put it back. You again. took the dead lion off our golden syrup. What are we going to do? Said England. Um, <laughs> well, if, yeah. if, if anyone is sensitive to disturbing ritual magic, yeah, like, it, it should be them. It's, frankly, it's just corn syrup now. Yeah, they're 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 one more hiccup away from wicker men coming back into the countryside. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive Through. Uh, another question, perhaps. If, if any of the other people, any of the other 118 would like to ask a question, we're happy to take questions from them as well. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's take a lesson, uh, a message from our off-site questioners. Uh, and uh, this is from uh, Patreon backer Marco Manorini. And he asks, 
if the license allowed you to do a Dracula dossier equivalent for Fall of Delta Green, what would that look like? So uh, a Dracula dossier, of course, is the uh, Knights Black Agents uh, supplement slash ad additional game on top of a game that uh, turns uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula text into a radically expanded edition with marginal notes that then becomes the basis, the number one prop in an epic uh, campaign of Dracula hunting. Uh, what would the equivalent of that for Fall of Delta Green be? I mean, the thing about the Fall of Delta Green is that to make it worth doing as Fall of Delta Green, it would have to be a text that has really specific valence in the 1960s, uh, something that uh, in the 1960s suddenly gets big. Um, and so I think you'd, uh, the licensing situation would, would kind of be impossible because the, the classic example of a text that gets adapted in the 1960s have a lot of its meanings uh, shifted around is uh, The Lord of the Rings, that it begins as a reactionary uh, uh, back-to-the-land um, uh, uh, fantasy epic of inspiration and suddenly becomes a radical text in the hands of the hippie movement. And the notion that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is privy to some ancient lore is, of course, embedded in Lord of the Rings, that he's got the Red Book uh, that he's uh, translating basically the, uh, the 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 story of Frodo out of, and uh, that it's been passed down from uh, uh, the the previous age of, of man uh, uh, before the, the the earth shifted and um, uh, the Celts stopped living in Saint John, and uh, you have I, I think the notion that J.R.R. Tolkien is acting as a conduit for primal forces would be super. Uh, grabby in the same way that Dracula is a spy novel is instantly grabby. And you could, you know, tie it into the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien was the philologist who was called in to authenticate, uh, the original finds of the, of the Nodens Temple in Lindy, Lindsay Park in, uh, Gloucestershire, or actually across the river from Gloucestershire in the Severn Valley. Um, and when they dug up the, uh, the, the ring that had a, a, a curse, uh, of Nodens on it, uh, he was there, uh, not quite at the dig, but he was very much brought in to analyze all the inscriptions that they'd found at Lindley Park. And so the notion that uh, Jared Tolkien is being told by Nodens of the previous age of, of, of man of drowned Numenor and the rest of it, I think could be a really fun, blow your mind book where you're looking for the, the, the red book, right? The, the, because um, uh, what people are looking for is someone to add word count to Lord of the Rings. Apparently they are. Uh, I mean, you and I may not be, but by God, the rest of the world seems to be. And, and I think that the notion of a secret history of Tolkien would be the same sort of uh, generative power, and you could then tie it in not just to Tolkien and researching into his life, uh, but you could also tie it into looking at the, the kinds of people that were trying to refract Lord of the Rings and make it mean something else in the 1960s. And so you could have a, a flower power cult that was up to no good, as well as whatever Tolkien's deep Atlantean sources actually were, uh, and the god Nodens. You'd have a lot of uh, irons in that fire, and then you could go scattering all over, uh, looking for traces of the previous age in our world. I think that'd be a, a really fun thing, but the licensing... Uh, forget Fall of Delta Green, the Tolkien license would be <laughs> unapproachably impossible uh, uh, to, to secure. But I think that would be the only thing that could really stand up on the same legs as Dracula in the 1960s. Um, I guess equally uh, impossible licensing-wise, you could do uh, the secret mythology of L. Ron Hubbard. 
<laughs> well, that would that would have a whole different yeah. set of, of uh, legal and social problems. Yes, and <laughs> possibly having a goon squad sent after you. And also, someone would then have to read Dianetics, uh, and that would, <laughs> and that's not going to be me. I can tell you that right. just right off the top. You have to find a clever licensor who could convince them that this would be good for their uh, for their IP brand. Yes, and, uh, to be pay, pay you, you that, a lot of that. The operating thetans are actually Yog Sothoth or whatever it is. Okay, another question from the audience. Both writers were connected or at least familiar with Helena Blavatsky's work about the secret prehistory of Earth. And we have, as you just mentioned, J.R.R. Tolkien's prehistory of our modern history. What order would you put these fully realized prehistories into? Should you be forced to string them together in a chronology that makes sense? So uh, the, the question is, how do you turn a, a uh, impeccably Velikovskian uh, continuity out of uh, Lovecraftian prehistory, uh, Tolkien's uh, uh, his, history, and uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, Hyborian age? And Blavatsky. And, and Blavatsky. Blavatsky. Well, the, the Robert E. Howard and Tolkien are easy. Because we know that the uh, sinking of Numenor is a, a key element that differentiates the Second Age from the Third Age. We know that uh, the Hyborian Age happens after the sinking of Atlantis, right? It's after the fall of Atlantis. We know that uh, Blavatsky has Atlantis as one of the root races, so she's pegged in. So Hyboria is after the, I want to say, sixth root race, which was the Atlanteans. Um because uh, the seventh of the Aryans. Oh, Helena, you goof, um, you circus goof. And so the uh, so you have Helena's uh, Atlantean cycle sits between uh, Tolkien's Third Age and Howard. Lovecraft then has to bracket all of them, and one assumes that Lovecraft's serpent people have to be uh, a precursor, possibly to. The third age, because one assumes that Smaug and the other worms are leftovers from the great age of monsters, that the serpent people are sort of the final uh, wash up. And that, of course, again, is Howard. And Howard, you can uh, look at his serpent people are in sort of first Atlantis 100,000 years ago, not 10,000 years ago. So I think with a, a, a good enough will, you can fit Tolkien's brief struggle against Sauron sort of as this little moment of heroism after the fall of first Atlantis, Numenor, and before the rise of second Atlantis, that is the sixth root race of, of Blavatsky. Right, yeah. Cole's Atlantis is, is the first Atlantis. And uh, whether you decide that's actually Lemuria or not is, I think, a whole different discussion. But it sounds more Lemurian to me. Um, and so Cole's Atlantis is, is is way back there. That ties you into Lovecraft and and off you go to the races. HPB and HPL have already rhymed forever. Um, for example, uh, she begins with the um, uh, immaterial race, is the first root race, uh, the Polarians, and that, of course, is the great race of yet. They're an immaterial race that they seep into us and uh, and make us do things. Then the next race are the are the sweatborn, um, uh, or is it the eggborn? I forget which it is. But the the race after uh, the, um, the the great race. Oh, God, I, I, I've actually done this. Um, <laughs> uh, but the um, uh, I, I think it, was it the Migo that are the Eggborn, and then 
the sweat born after them are the, the Vormi and the furry prehumans. And so you can sort of take Blavatsky's root races and map them not unconvincingly onto Lovecraft. Um, since we have to put the serpent people in there, you'd probably have to do it again or decide that the serpent people are one of the, the sub-root races that, that she has that come off the root races. And you can even argue that they're the degenerate ones that the tail end of the age produces, that in the, in the Kali Yuga, the serpent people come out. So, you know, you'd have to sort of spin the Blavatsky wheel a little bit. But Blavatsky and Lovecraft already work. Howard is slottable in there. Um, and uh, the Hyborian Age, thank God, is the last one because it's the one that happens, um, you know, right up until the Nile becomes the Mediterranean and uh, uh, the uh, Styx River becomes um, uh, uh, the Mediterranean Channel. Uh, question in the back. Uh, so this is the uh, the, the Holy Blood uh, uh, Grail theory and vampires, uh, mm-hmm. and of course the precursor of uh, Dan Brown. We've talked about this a bit on the show, but maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you can briefly encapsulate uh, this uh, famous historical conspiracy theory. Right. Uh, to begin with, um, the the Holy Grail is, is is a whole different topic of its own. But circa 1956, there is a surrealist prankster named Gerard de Sed who gets together and forges a bunch of historical documents uh, purporting to prove that uh, Mary Magdalene bore Christ's uh, uh, son and created the uh, lineage of the Merovingian kings. And he did that at the behest of a weird occult fascist named Pierre Plantard, who was probably working as the cat's paw for an entirely different weird occult fascist named Monty. And uh, Monty wanted this put together... I think because he thought it would impress Freemasons. This is my working theory. I have not seen this necessarily anywhere, but Gerard de Sed puts this together because right. Gerard de Sed by then is a nihilist. He's given completely up on believing anything, but he is still a brilliant creator until so he makes up this awesome legend. And, and this plays into the French tradition of occultism, which more so than in the Anglo world is still tied into the church, that there's a, a, there's a tradition of Martinism and an attempt to essentially have a form of thaumaturgy, and often the occultists are thinking, well, if we just perfect our magic enough, the ultra-conservative wing of the French Catholic Church will embrace us, uh, which weirdly never happens. <laughs> um, and uh, and these guys keep converting into hardcore Catholics. Going, oh, okay, you're right, I was wrong about all the occult stuff, I'm just going to be straight yeah. up uh, ultra-conservative Catholic, uh, which of course edges into uh, the uh, the French fascist movement, the, the homegrown fascist movement, and then uh, after a while they say, oh, but uh, wait a minute, just being a regular hard right Catholic is a dra- uh, sort of a drag. There's no magic or no crazy robes. Let's go back to being a cultist again. So mm-hmm. it's it's that's why that would somehow oppress impress Freemasons. So it's not right. quite as uh, ludicrous uh, off kilter a thought. It's right. actually in the French occult tradition to think this would be a thing. Right. And indeed, plenty of uh, uh, Martinist grifters did in fact impress Freemasons and make quite a nice living out of it. So uh, this sits idle in the French National Archives and the French political sub-discussion until a number of English authors uh, and one French author uncover it again it's like a delayed fuse mine that just goes off in the early 80s, and they write a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, where they take Desed's forgeries straight up, tie it into the ongoing mystery of the Rennes-le-Chateau, which was a church built by a very strange priest 
who may or may not have also been a Rosicrucian, and they will solve one mystery with another mystery, and sure enough, we'll put the Holy Grail into it, because that uh, then allows us to say that the Holy Grail is the symbolic uh, bloodline of Christ, that the vessel would be uh, Mary Magdalene's uterus, technically would be the grail. And by putting the grail in it, all of a sudden, it's ripe to go into the Anglo world, because that's something that makes sense to uh, English-speaking uh, readers who are interested right. in New Agey stuff, whereas all of this Martinism and, and Merovingian and Merovingians right. that they can't process that, but right. you know, uh, Holy Grail—that's that's just straight yeah. up into the bloodline. And, and so the notion of the Holy Grail as a sacred bloodline becomes, you know, uh, explodes and becomes very, very popular. They sell a zillion copies of the book, and God bless them for it. Um, and then it becomes the basis for Dan Brown's uh, heartbreakingly successful thriller, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Now. Um, the Holy Grail, per se, is a whole different question, and uh, one can be, I think, a devout Grail scholar and be looking at the Grail as either the the uh, actual cup of Christ on the theory that all the rest of the bits are still kicking around, why not the cup? Or you can be basing on the notion that the Grail is the purest possible Christian in- initiation because it is the one that Christ gave to his disciples at his own hands. And you're using the grail in some senses as a metaphor, but in another sense very much as a concentrated object in the way that uh, Christian mystics often meditate on the sacred heart of Jesus or the wounds of Jesus uh, and uh, attain uh, an enlightened state by dint of this meditation. Uh, the grail can be used as a focus for that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm not intending to diss the notion of the mystical grail because it's it's transparently effective and transparently works, but the crazy French Freemason grail is a, 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 a dodge to skin rubes. Right, because <laughs> it's literalizing myth. Right, right? It's, yeah. it's like taking uh, this divine story and saying, oh, and here these actual human kings had this blood, mm-hmm. and uh, blood brings us back to vampires. So, exactly. So uh, the uh, idea that uh, if there is a bloodline of people who are infused uh, with this uh, initially divine holy blood and are now uh, walking around through the world, then that's where I think vampires get involved. And so you were mentioning that there's this sort of shadowy fascist uh, figure. And when I think of someone who's a shadowy fascist, uh, you know, there's a fascist within a fascist and somebody else, I think there had to have been a vampire at the end of that chain going, let's find a, a nihilist to forge some documents for us, because if you are looking for that extra tasty divine blood, you want to find people who are interested in reading about this because they don't uh, remember who they are. They don't know how much of this divine blood is going through their veins, but uh, you want to find them out. So you're hoping that your small press crazy book that has the thin margins on the back and will appeal to a few people in France, because that's where you know all the tasty blood is somewhere in France, uh, you know, if we sell 4,000 copies of this, disproportionately... It will find its it way find into the hands of the bears of the, 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 bears of the, of the blood. blood. And so that's how you find them. But uh, either because uh, nihilistically uh, this surrealist guy made it too interesting and then it blew up and everybody was into it. And, and it may well have been that the vampires uh, were beginning to contain it and beginning to find some other... You know, it's no longer just oh, you have a copy of this book proves that you're tasty, but also that, well, maybe you have a copy of this book and then we do some other test. So as a vampire, when you're creeping into somebody's house, first you check to see if they have Holy Blood, Holy Grail, right. and then, okay, and then I'll, you know, oh, and they also, uh, they cook with fennel, but not with garlic. Okay, great. 
right. super. Um, but then it goes crazy worldwide. So could the inexplicable success of Dan Brown's writing be due to the uh, heirs of Van Helsing uh, making that more popular in order to ruin this otherwise perfectly good way of vampires uh, uh, profiling their prey? Well, you can't rule it out. Um, and uh, certainly uh, the notion that Project Edom, my own uh, deduced vampire uh, fighting organization within MI6, might have been responsible, makes me uh, quietly proud uh, that something I made up is uh, stopping something that Dan Brown uh, plagiarized. Uh, the notion of the vampires feeding on the bearers of the powerful divine blood makes me think that there is an interesting notion that it's a vampiric initiation, not that they're trying to attain, uh, uh, you know, knowledge of Christ, but that it is, the, the blood is so powerful that only the most puissant of vampires can drink it. It's like, you know, sort of half macho hot sauce drinking competition and half, you know, a culling, a magical culling of the weak vampires. Well, and well, that's one of the reasons that they might want that blood is that in addition to its magical powers, it also separates the men from the boys' vampire species. Well, now that you say that, it becomes apparent to me that it's a vaccination, right? Right. If you're a vampire, you don't want people to have uh, crucifixes have power over you. You want to be able to walk faith. into churches. You've been able to walk into churches. And so uh, just a little bit of uh, of divine powers. And homeopathic. Of homeopathic vampirism. Right. And so you're able to ab- absorb... Homeopathic holy blood. Yes, exactly. Allows you to uh, show up in mirrors and walk into churches and uh, withstand crucifixes and walk around in sunlight. Yeah, so yeah. that's why... It's not just that they're delicious. I'm sure they are. Right, yeah. But this gives you... Well, they're French. Yeah. <laughs> they're full of, you know, delicious olive oil and well, garlic and well, gar- cream. Well, garlic, that's a problem. Mm, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, again, that's why you have to go through that hot sauce part. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah, it's probably not. It's it's it probably burns a lot. It's like getting you know the, the shingrex, the uh, right. the vaccine for the shingles, which mm-hmm. uh, makes you feel a little ill for a couple of days, and and so it may well be that that is uh, why the the vampires are looking to hone in on this, and and every time uh, it begins to die down, and they can use it as more of a profile, then the property gets another boost. So I'm sure they right. were really unhappy with Tom Hanks, and then they find out. What there's a they've made another sequel. I didn't oh, think the first one. We were watching the box terrible. office in the first one, and um, but it, it is a uh, interesting way culturally for a lot of very uh, churchy people to flirt with the uh, irresponsible tropes of magic. That's for right. sure. And and one of the fun things about Desed is that one of the sources that he took his imagery from is lesser known Jules Verne novels. <laughs> That if you go through the original Dossier Secrets that he made up, there's a lot of stuff that he just sort of borrowed out of Jules Verne. Not, as far as I know, sadly, Castle in the Carpathians, the sadly vampire-free, but really, uh, Jules Verne novel. So there's more to that story, uh, I think. Cthulhu, Hasker, who's the great old one and who's the greatest old one? Time to find out. It's WrestleNomicon, con, 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 the card game from veterans of Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, Epic Spell Wars, and Delta Green. As a fan of all things good, Max Nestorowicz said, 
I've never played something that captures the rhythm and back and forth of a fighting game like Russellomicon from Arc Dream Publishing. Plus, it's filled with eldritch horror goodness, premium puns, and A-plus artwork. Back it while you can. Find Russellomicon Con Con at Kickstarter or at Russellomicon.com. Okay, another question from the audience. We can either go for cage fight or tag team wrestling. Yeah. I'm listening. In a, in a cage fight between Morning of the Magicians and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, who would win? Or would you rather go for a tag team match between the various authors of those two books? Well, let's see. Two Frenchmen versus two Englishmen and a Frenchman. I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, and, and for the benefit of listeners, Morning of the Magicians, is, uh, which is, is going to get into a cage fight with uh, Holy Blood, uh, Holy Grail. Right. Uh, Morning of the Magicians is by uh, a couple of guys um, named uh, Powells and Bergier. I think Powells was actually Belgian, maybe, uh, speaking of the Belgians. Um, but the uh, but uh, they wrote this book in 1960 and uh, wrote it as a summa of uh, the fact that the world is bigger than we know. There's all kinds of mysterious forces in the world. Uh, the great masters of the occult knew it. And so did Hitler. What? Record scratch. <laughs> this is the first book to sort of say, well, Hitler's not using Hitler. I can make a fat ton of money off Hitler. And it, uh. You would be wondering why I'm profited, why I came to profit off Hitler. Right, because no one else is yet. And, and so Bergier and Powell say that, uh, the, the great, uh, impetus behind, uh, Nazism was its ability to step outside consensus reality. And it stepped outside consensus reality, not in the, uh, don't attack Russia on land and uh, don't murder a zillion people, but also in the uh, uh, <laughs> physics is a lie uh, level of stepping outside reality. And the, the notion is, um, uh, as, as Lenin says, uh, communism is socialism plus electricity. Nazism is socialism plus magic. And that uh, that is their sort of great insight into, uh, uh, into, into the Nazi movement. So the combination of sexy uh, uh, magic Hitler... And a, uh, the sort of, um, gallimaufry of previous occult thought, uh, presented in the kind of breathless falling downstairs prose that seems to sell, uh, and certainly sold very well in the 1960s. There was a lot of those. Turned it into a giant, uh, bestseller was translated into English as Morning Mitches in 1963 and blew the doors off, uh, rewrote, uh, Anglophone publishing and opened the floodgates for a zillion books. Uh, uh, of various uh, uh, degrees and, and tenors, much like it. Uh, so in the question of which one is uh, is going to win the fight, we, we've got basically my least favorite Hollywood plot, which is the Daddy Issues plot. So uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail clearly could not have existed without Morning of the Magicians. That Morning of the Magicians is setting this pattern and the writers of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, whether they're responding directly to it or responding to the publishing environment that it created. So a lot of that is, I don't need your Nazis. I've got something great. Now, that said, two of the authors did go on to write their own magic Nazi book, although in fairness to them, they wrote a magic anti-Nazi book as well as a magic Nazi book. So six of one. But uh, I, I think that you've got to give the legs to um, uh, Morning of the Magicians, uh, not least because it also happened to adduce H.P. Lovecraft as a major... Uh, uh, channel, literally, for this occult existence, and said that Lovecraft's uh, prose was basically 
um, uh, uh, spirit writing, that he was uh, taking real myths and real truths and uh, presenting them uh, to an unbelieving world, uh, much the same way uh, it is in- insinuated that the Bible or something else was. And so the uh, notion of Lovecraft as uh, a spiritual guru and vector for uh, cosmic truths uh, still taints uh, Lovecraftian fiction to this day, and also um, uh, happened to seed uh, the Lovecraft revival in Europe, pretty much, because everyone's like, I gotta read this Lovecraft guy. And Bergier and Powell's read it in, in American Armed Forces editions, and uh, that was what began the big wave of uh, Lovecraft translations in Europe in the 60s and 70s, was, was that. So I think you've got to give it legs, because H.P. Lovecraft in Europe beats Tom Hanks in a garbagey movie. Uh, do we have another question from the audience? In that case, uh, let's go to our uh, off-site questioners. Uh, Jeremy French asks, what is the newest food ingredient that has you inspired? And my answer is, uh, this is not a new ingredient to the world of cooking. It's just a new ingredient to my cooking, which is I've discovered that, uh, boy, panko chips go in a lot of things yeah. that you wouldn't anticipate that they do. These, of course, are the particular sort of deep-fried, ready, crummy, uh, you know, the fancy Japanese variation of, uh, of, breadcrumbs. of breadcrumbs. And uh, it, uh, I had... Uh, a really great pasta dish at a, a restaurant during our staycation in Toronto last year, and they had uh, it was just a, instead of a uh, a sauce for the uh, angel hair, it was a, a layer of uh, panko uh, uh, chips plus uh, olive oil, and and then the, the the different ingredients, the olives and so forth, and that was just uh, really tasty. So I decided to start incorporating it into things, and it turns out that. Uh, if you just want to give a lot of, a bit of extra zing or crunch, or you can put a, a, a sort of a, a seared flavor into things. If you just put the panko chips in a, a saucepan with a little bit of butter and heat them up and get them all crispy. So it's like little delicious, super advanced toast crumbs right. in whatever or it tiny, is. Tiny, tiny croutons. Yeah. Um, so they go obviously in pasta as I specified, but also, uh, you can put them in a, uh, uh, a vegetable roast, they're great. There's a, uh, number of crustless, uh, quiche, uh, recipes, uh, that you can do in an instant pot. And then if you put a layer of, uh, uh, panko uh, chips on top of those, that gives you, uh, an even a more delightful, uh, uh, sort of counter uh, crust on top. And if you mix that with parmesan, uh, that is fabulous. So I'm finding a whole lot of, uh, because I think a really fun, interesting ingredient to play with if you're a cook who likes to mess with things and find, uh, you know, just look at what you've got in the cupboard and put them together, that it uh, is very versatile and uh, gives you a nice little subtle thing that's going on that's not the main thing. And in addition, they're also, uh, I think, better than uh, the other kind of breadcrumbs, maybe not better than the ones you make yourself, but maybe even uh, for meatballs, that the, the because they have that bigger surface area, but they're thinner, they do the job that breadcrumbs are supposed to do in meatballs of holding the meatball together, but you don't ever run into the risk of, oh, I've just bit into breadcrumb, right? You, the, 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 it actually acts as a little boat for the meat to sit on. So I, I think that panko in a meatball is the way. So if your recipe says breadcrumbs, just read panko. Uh, the most recent ingredient that I have fallen in love with is a Peruvian pepper called the aji amarillo, which means yellow sauce, thanks Peru, um, 
But it's uh, the ahi is the pepper, and the amarillo is the sauce that's made out of it, I suppose. Although maybe they're they're also the kind of pepper, but I don't think they're yellow peppers. But anyway, the sauce is is sort of a bright yellow orange, and it is both hot but not super hot. So hotter than jalapeno, but it's not up to habanero at all. And it's very sweet and fruity in a way that not a lot of peppers are really at all. I mean, bell peppers maybe a little bit, but these are proper peppers and or proper pepper. And you can get it in this uh, sauce blend or the sauce paste, basically. Uh, and you can, I assume if you've got a Peruvian grocery store near you, you can go buy it or a good Hispanic grocery store. But you can also order it off the internet, off Amazon for no money whatsoever. It's dirt cheap. And it can go as the secret powerhouse ingredient in your Lomo Saltado. It can go into your charro beans when you make charro beans and give them a, a sweet peppery zing and you don't have to spend all that time roasting poblano peppers. You can do a lot of things with it that you might do uh, with uh, poblanos or you might do it with jalapenos, but it adds that fruitiness that neither poblanos nor jalapenos have. And I've made a ahi amarillo and coconut uh, milk chicken where you blend the ahi amarillo and the coconut milk so that the coconut milk damps down the the heat of the pepper, but you still get all the fruity, delicious flavor, and you're not burning your mouth off by drinking a third of a cup of pepper sauce. And uh, you basically um, uh, put uh, butternut squash in and uh, uh, fry some chicken uh, on each side, put that on top of the butternut squash, toss that in the oven, and uh, the oven roasts the chicken oven fries the skin so you still have crispy delicious skin and then also cooks this sauce into a delicious wonderful goo and softens your butternut squash down you put that on rice and oh my god do you get to go to a castle in poland for a week and your wife doesn't get mad at you that's how good it <laughs> that's, is that's some good chicken <laughs> yeah well on that i think uh you know even more so than uh why mead is holy and honey beer is not, or why vampires started the Holy uh, Grail tra- uh, meme. I think this is really information that our, our listeners, uh, both here uh, at uh, CarcosaCon and uh, at home, can use. And I think on that note, and especially because our time is up, it's time for our outro. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Arc Dream. Dark Power. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new design. Cthulhu is woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Law. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. Yeah.